particular podcast is going to be about uh, white privilege and allyship in the Black Lives Matter movement. And it's also going to serve as a space for me to sort of talk about why it is I, as a white female, um, am doing this research on um, the experiences of black students at Emory and their protests related to the Black Lives Matter movement. So similar to many black students at Emory, I went to a high school um, in which um, African Americans were the racial majority and thus making me, a white person, a racial minority. So white privilege wasn't something that was really talked about at my high high school because it was a phenomenon that wasn't as prevalent as it is in many other portions of society. Additionally, my high school was really small, um, and we had the community um, identity of being artists. Um, So we were marginalized by the county system in that way because we were an arts high school, and we always struggled to get funding. Um, You know, we were sort of the stepchild of DeKalb County, so that's the way in which we all bonded and were the same. But in coming to Emory... I had to, I was forced to get in touch with the reality of what it is to be a white person in um, American society broadly, and particularly at a university. I didn't necessarily identify with my whiteness, so I didn't identify with whiteness fully, but I also didn't know where I fit in in the black community because it was a minority community at Emory, and um was dealing with with issues of race and with um, identity. So I didn't really know where I fit in, and I feel that there are ways in which I made decisions that automatically constructed my whiteness for me. Um, one of those decisions was joining a primarily white sorority, and after that, I didn't really know where I stood as a white ally because I felt that many people in the black community didn't know who I was and, you know, would sort of question me if I came to the protests um, or, you know, ask me about what I knew about the black experience, which I was talking to um, a research participant and they confronted me with this question of why it is that I'm doing this research because... In their experience, many white people come into the black community to conduct research with no um, benefit for the black community. It's really to serve the white person alone and their goals and not really benefit anyone um, but themselves. And this sort of exploitative research is definitely not something that I want to do. And there's a way in which... um, I don't want to speak for the experiences of others, 
which is why I've chosen to do a podcast series because I wanted um, people's voices to stand alone and for people to be able to recount their experiences and provide a platform um, for those experiences to be listened to and to be heard. There's a way also in which this podcast series is me um, finding my voice as an ally in this movement because I've discovered in doing this research that silence is one of the biggest uh, forms of white privilege in a movement like this. If I'm not actively working to destroy this system and speak out against it, then it's never going to go away. So I'd like to start with a discussion first of what white privilege exactly is. And I found a really good article by um, a woman with the last name Burwell Chen. And she sort of defines it, and this is how many other scholars define it, as the fact that white culture and whiteness in America is normative and everything else any other culture any other um, race is not um, she quotes Richard Dyer who says that white normativity is based on the assumption that white people are just people um, which is nor far off saying that whites are people whereas other colors are something else so this means that whites have the non-raced claim to power to speak for humanity whereas people of other races are only allowed to speak for their own race. Another scholar uh, that really gives a very nice discussion about whiteness and white privilege is Jennifer Potter. And in her article, she argues that, um, or rather, she cites Ruth Frankenberg, who um, argues that whiteness comprises three primary characteristics. First, whiteness encompasses a structural advantage. Second, it's a standpoint, a place from which white people look at ourselves, at others, and at society. Third, whiteness includes unmarked normativity of cultural practices. So this is sort of the definition of white privilege. It's that white culture is automatically marked as normative, or rather, it's unmarked. Um, it flies under the, the radar. Um, uh, Potter also says white people only think about their whiteness when confronted with representations of non-white people in many ways the fact that whiteness is unmarked and only obvious in the face of difference creates the constant need for an other to exist she also says this making of others while remaining unmarked is the essential nature of whiteness and white privilege. It makes working through racism and unworking the strategic nature of whiteness nearly impossible. So both the Burwell Chin and um, Potter articles essentially boil white privilege down to this. It's the fact that white people have the ability to remain silent about issues of race because they don't have to engage. They don't have to fight for their rights because they already have them all. Um, I really like Burwell Chen talks about um, James Baldwin's theory about why white people don't speak up 
about issues of race. James Baldwin says, What whites see is an appallingly oppressive and bloody history known all over the world. What they see is a disastrous continuing present condition which menaces them and for which they bear an inescapable responsibility. But since, in the main, they seem to lack the energy to change this condition, they would rather not be reminded of it. Burwell Chen further paraphrases Baldwin's argument. She says, Baldwell skillfully identifies the stakes or incentives for white Americans to distance themselves from even engaging, let alone thinking critically, about racial inequalities. It is fear of being held responsible for both for their ancestors' crimes and being held accountable for dismantling their own whiteness, against which all other races are measured and denigrated. It's fear of losing the psychological and material safety and benefits for their white, their white privilege affords them. This encompasses the fear of actually feeling uncomfortable and unsafe. Essentially, it's a fear associated with leaving secure spheres of privilege to engage with those who have not been arbitrarily awarded such conferred dominance and unearned advantages. So clearly, because Emory is, we've discussed, this primarily white institution, um, white privilege is pervasive here. And many uh, students that I interviewed talked about uh, their experiences being confronted with this structural inequality of white privilege. Which includes, you know, the ability of white students to remain silent on issues of race. Honestly, I think it was just the subject matter. Mm-hmm. And, like, how relevant it is right now. Mm-hmm. And just because, like, it was a subject matter that didn't only affect the minorities and okay. the, who are the, I'm mm-hmm. like, a, yeah. I assume is the main, like, protesters. Like, because, like, I feel like the other protests are, like, they're problems that, like, are serious problems, but they're only serious for the, the people that are actually protesting. But, like, mm-hmm. for example, Trump, like, that could be a problem for you know anyone. That could be a problem for everyone in this country. That's something that affects everyone in this country that's being protested, whether or not it's a problem. Right. But like, still, it's like, you know. But if if it's like, oh man, black people are being treated wrong by the police. If I'm a white person, like, I like, I that that won't affect me. Like, it it might it could affect my conscience. Like, I could I care. I mm-hmm. would care. But like, it's just like. It won't affect my life directly, so I feel like it. once it affects your life directly, it's easier to like pay attention to it and say, hmm, like, let's think about what what's going on, what they're saying, you know. Okay. So. Because that free speech definitely got a lot of people. Like, I feel like that's what everybody jumped on that. They're like, oh, what about free speech? That's when they started paying attention, right. you know. Because it wasn't just about Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Interesting. So, um, because you have people who, who are in places of privilege where they could leave Emory University and be the exact same person that they were when they came in. And that is educational malpractice because they're not ready for the real world. And I realized that because uh, I didn't go to Mm -hmm. a $60,000 high school, um, that I am behind some of my peers, not because I'm not as smart as them, but just because, again, I have not been as privileged with them uh, as them. And there's no resources here to help me get ahead. Mm -hmm. I just have to do everything by myself. I have to create my own social scene. I have to create my own academic tutoring. I have to just make a way for myself. But then Mm -hmm. there's other students who rightfully so have all these things given to them because they're paying for them, but I'm paying for these things and they're not there, so.
when you're receiving information that isn't in line with your predispositions, it needs to come from someone you trust, it needs to come from someone you identify with and someone you're comfortable with, I guess, so, or someone you respect even, and in some ways that could mean getting a more holistic, comprehensive education when you're younger and, <laughs> and understanding, like, hey kids, <laughs> this is how, <laughs> this is how our nation set up black people to fail. Discuss. <laughs> teacher like a blatant like a very clear authority figure saying like this like just kind of blending out everything and you and it's reinforced throughout your education and it makes more sense that when you get to this place where you have people who are politicized and people who are much more vocal then you're like oh, okay I heard about this I didn't really understand it but let's discuss more or something you know mm. um also just not being so sheltered. I, I, like, I don't know where people get their news from, but <laughs> no one knows what's going on. I don't... I, like, when you... When you grow up around people who are the same as you and who have a certain view and you just don't get outside of that until... you get to college and it just so happens that... you're in the frat that has the most, like, the richest alumni, the most endowments, and then the president protects, like, <laughs> your interests, like, it, it just follows that the voices of smaller mm -hmm. communities will be erased, or just kind of muffled. Yeah. Yeah, like, I don't know, I read this great article once that the title was something of, like, yes, that's your opinion, but you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is, like, my life, <laughs> which is like what I tell people all the time. Like, it's literally, yeah, what activism tends to be. Another really interesting kind of manifestation of white privilege at Emory came up in one of the informal interviews, or rather informal discussions that I was having with a research participant, and she was talking to me about how upset she was over white sorority's use of um, black material culture in their like mass Facebook posts. For example, she was referring to a post from earlier that day by Kappa Alpha Theta that um, had a reference to Kanye's new album for no apparent reason at all. Uh, seeing themselves as void of culture and ethnicity, whites do not recognize Cultural envy is the pinnacle of white privilege. How the taken-for-granted notion of whiteness in contemporary America perpetuates white supremacy. Although the Black Lives Matter movement at Emory has many different allied bodies, it's clear that the population of white allies at in the movement at Emory is not nearly enough. Um, okay. Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely felt like I, I had missed I think two protests before that mm -hmm. um, and I was really happy to see that people were doing things mm -hmm. um, on campus and I just wanted to be supportive um, and, and that one um, that one I think ended up being like one of the most popular ones mm -hmm. um, so yeah I just I just wanted to get involved because I knew I, it had been going on for a while 
What role do you think that your body played in the process? An ally. A non-black Okay. So, did you think that that was an important role to be filled? I think, yes, it's an important role, but, like, at the same time, like, if I were there, I don't think it would have been that different at the same time. Like, I think if we had more than, like, we definitely had more than just me, who was yeah. a non-black body. Yeah. But at the same time, I wish we had, like, more. Because, mm-hmm. like, yeah, like... <laughs> Both Burwell, Chen, and Potter mentioned that a primary way to start becoming a white ally is in listening. Or me, personally. Okay. I'd like to see more, like, black students, like inviting white students Mm -hmm. personally to protest with them like Mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying like hey this is wrong you know it's wrong like Mm -hmm. and I feel like or I want to see more white students volunteering to protest like I just that's where it should start like I feel like there should be more of an open communication you know like there should it shouldn't really be begging as much as like I'm letting you know that this is like a problem Mm -hmm. so there you're either like doing nothing and you, that that signifies to me that you're okay with this problem mm-hmm. that because like if I tell you if you're my friend and I tell you I'm in distress and you don't change your actions at all in any way or don't like then I know okay well then she doesn't care that I'm in distress uh, I guess two questions why do you think it is that um, white students aren't participating and how could you encourage that to happen more I mean, I think again with the the whole the whole feeling, the air of hostility, mm-hmm. it's just there. Like, mm-hmm. as if I like as a white student, you know, I I would be scared to go to these protests if I wasn't, you know, fully mm-hmm. like aware of everything that was going on, you know, because then, I, you know, there's the fear of being called out saying, oh, you're just like, you're just here for whatever reason, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And people calling out people's reasons for showing mm-hmm. support. A lot of the articles I read though talk about the importance of action in really becoming an ally of breaking down the structure of white privilege in this country. Um, It's not enough just to talk the talk, you have to walk the walk. It's not enough to say that you're an ally, but you have to start acting like one and actively trying to break down these barriers all of the time. For example, it's not enough to just change your profile picture on Facebook in support of a movement and not actually be out on the streets protesting with people. But either way, white people have to take some sort of action. I'd like to end with a quote from Potter. She said, white people cannot declare themselves indifferent to racial politics. It's too easy for a sympathetic self-effacement to become another trick of quiet dominance. The last thing I have to say is a little bit bittersweet, but, um, like, I appreciate you doing this. I appreciate you understanding where you stand with this hierarchy, right? Hierarchy? Words are hard. But at the same time, when, like you saying, it's... 
it's different coming from you as a white person telling white people like open their eyes and see what's going on versus like me or like a Chi Chi or like you know some mm. some black person saying like hey guys by the way <laughs> racism mm. um, and it's just sad because like it's it's like it's not even your struggle like it's not why not listen to the people who it affects as opposed to not an outsider but someone who's like, someone who is remotely understanding this, I guess, or through a different lens, like seeing that it's happening and understanding and wanting to change it, it's, it's just so frustrating. They demanded to speak to him. They went to the administrator's office. They held signs. They just—they—they they were disruptive. I mean, they—they they were loud.